Welcome back to The Re-Education. After this episode, I will be taking a three-month hiatus. Don't worry, I will be back. So if you're longing for more content, I recommend going through the archives. There are several good episodes that will keep you busy until I return. But before our pause, I wanted to leave my listeners with a classic. This episode examines the leader of the Jewish underground in British Mandate Palestine. His name was Menachem Begin. His journey took him from a gulag in Siberia to the Nobel Peace Prize ceremony in Oslo. And in this episode, I will focus on his time in the resistance. My guest is the author of Menachem Begin, The Battle for Israel's Soul, Daniel Gordis. So pour yourself a glass of wine. This episode is a banger. This is what an Israeli political earthquake sounds like. The date is May 17, 1977, and the settlers in the territory Israel won 10 years earlier in the Six-Day War were over the moon. The cause of their jubilation was the election of a center-right coalition known as Likud. For the first time in its history, the socialist founding fathers of Israel were driven from power. This is how the news was conveyed on Israeli television. It was not just a political upheaval. This election struck a deep cultural chord. The ruling labor coalition may have donned the clothing of the workers, open-collared shirts and sandals, but the party of David Ben-Gurion, the state's founding father, had become an insular elite comprised of European or Ashkenazi Jews. The real Israeli proletariat, the Yossi Sixpacks, the truck drivers, the Jews that fled from the Arab world, known as Mizrahim, were on the outside looking into Israel's political establishment. No more. The man who led these castoffs out of the wilderness wandered in the political desert himself for 29 years. He was an Ashkenazi from Belarus, but the Mizrahi adored him. He was a man who lost his family to the Nazis and survived the Gulag, a man whose mugshot once adorned wanted posters throughout British Mandate Palestine, a man who prevented a Jewish civil war even as he was slandered and shot at by his Zionist rivals. His name was Menachem Begin. We are listening now to a crowd of Menachem Begin's enraptured supporters singing as they awaited Israel's next prime minister to declare victory. Begin was beaming that day. Newsreel footage of the moment shows his owlish face, eyes framed by rounded rectangle glasses, nodding as he soaked up the adulation. He recited the traditional prayer of gratitude, the Shakiano, and, modifying a verse from the book of Jeremiah, thanked his wife, Eliza for standing by his side as they walked through minefields. It's hard to underestimate what a moment this was. Begin and his Heirut, or Freedom Party, had run for office since the founding of the state. During the campaign, he suffered a heart attack. He privately told aides that if he didn't make it this time, at age 63, he wouldn't try again. And then, after going zero for eight, Begin wins. Yeah. 
the generals beat the Globetrotters. There was a joke in Israeli politics that captured the futility of Begin's political career until this moment. A man standing outside the Knesset chants, Begin for prime minister. So a legislator comes up to him and asks him what he's doing. And the man replies that it's his job. He gets a penny a day for chanting his wish that Menachem Begin lead the country. Knesset member shrugs and says, one penny, that's not much. And the man replies, it's not a lot, but the job is a lifetime appointment. And it wasn't just a win for Herut and the coalition of center-right parties that ran that year known as Likud. It was the vindication that an alternative theory of Zionism was just as much a part of Israel's soul as the ideology of Theodor Herzl and David Ben-Gurion. Israel was not just a safe haven. It was a land promised in the Bible to God's chosen people, Eretz Yisrael. And this brings us to that song from Begin's victory speech. It was composed by Begin's mentor and later rival, Vladimir Zev Jabotinsky. It speaks of the honor of dying if one must to build a Jewish home. From the pit of decay and dust will arise us a generation, proud, generous, and fierce. That is from the song. It was the anthem of Jabotinsky's youth movement, Betar, named for the last fort to fall to the Romans in Bar Kokhba's 2nd century CE rebellion. Betar molded Begin as an adolescent into the man that would eventually lead the Jewish state. At the heart of Betar and Jabotinsky's revisionist Zionism was Hadar, a Hebrew word that is hard to translate. It is a combination of glory, self-respect, honor, and dignity. Hadar is, of course, found in the Bible. It's a concept that goes back centuries in Jewish liturgy. But for Jabotinsky, it was a reimagining of the Jew in exile. It is a strong rebuke of the Jewish victim in Chaim Bialik's poetry, scattered, scared, always living at the mercy of hostile hosts. For Jabotinsky and later Begin, Jews would no longer be spectators to their annihilation. No more would Jews be herded like cattle on rail cars and into ovens. No more would Jews watch mute as Cossacks raped their wives and daughters. The new Jew would fight. For Begin and the other followers of Jabotinsky, Hadar meant dressing in clean clothes and carrying your back straight. When Begin, as an opposition leader, visited IDP camps with Jewish immigrants from Iraq, Iran, and Morocco, he would wear a dark gray suit, even in the blazing Levantine summer. Hadar also meant never bending the knee. In 1946, as the Jewish Yeshuv in Palestine was in full rebellion against the British, a group of his fighters were flogged as punishment after they were captured, and Begin considered this a stain on the honor of Jewish soldiers. Whippings were punishment fit for thieves and petty criminals. A Hebrew soldier was owed respect. So he announced a new policy. Floggings for floggings. Whips for whips. And eventually, gallows for gallows. His fighters went hunting for an appropriate target. Few British sergeants. They removed the trousers and administered the same number of whips that were delivered to their own men. That is also Hadar. And in this sense, Hadar was the ethos that prepared a generation in diaspora to return to Zion. For Herzl, the first great theorist of Zionism, the need for a Jewish state was pragmatic. It was late in the game when Herzl eventually apologized for once proposing a Jewish homeland in Uganda. His work was primarily concerned with the practical strategies of acquiring land, building an army, learning agriculture, 
influencing British and Ottoman policy. For Jabotinsky and the Revisionists, Jewish nationalism was connected to a Jewish history that goes back to Abraham. It was almost a spiritual endeavor. And this spirit, this journey of a people returning to rule the land of Solomon's temple and Bar Kokhba's tunnels, animated Begin's entire life. Here I want to read from Begin's 1952 memoir, The Revolt. Quote, In the diaspora, Jews sang of our ancient hope to return to the land of our fathers. In Eretz Yisrael, the Jews sang of our ancient hope to be a free people in our own country. Such a people cannot be ruled by aliens. It must liberate itself from their yoke. And the effort at liberation can only be a matter of time. End quote. So one finds a hint of Franz Fanon, the Algerian revolutionary psychiatrist in all of this, the inevitability of liberation, the contrast of the emancipated Jew and those without freedom in diaspora. But there are also important differences. Unlike Fanon, Begin did not believe violence cleansed the soul or that the victim must become executioner to know freedom. Contrary to the Palestinian account of the War of Independence, Begin's Etzel did not encourage but sought to avoid killing civilians, even in the bloody street battle of Deir Yassin. But there was also a parallel. Begin was a revolutionary, and he believed that an independent Jewish state was worth the blood spilled to create it. So who was this guy? Well, Menachem Begin's story begins in the small town of Brest-Litovsk in Belarus. In Yiddish, it was known as Brisk, and it is where Begin was born on August 16th, 1913. It is the eve of the First World War. His father, Zev Dov Begin, studied under Rabbi Chaim Soloveitchik at the yeshiva in Brisk, but he made his money selling timber. Elder Begin was a tough Jew. According to my guest Daniel Gordis's biography, Zev refused to speak Polish because he considered it an anti-Semitic language and urged his children to speak only Hebrew in the home. In a story that parallels the tale of Modest Yahoo's defiance of a Roman officer in the Book of Maccabees, Zev once struck a Polish policeman with his walking stick as that policeman was trying to cut off a rabbi's beard. The stick was engraved with a line from Emile Zola's famous defense of Alfred Dreyfus, the French officer libeled as a traitor. You could say in this respect that Hadar ran in Begin's blood. Begin's youth was shaped by his father. His adolescence and young adulthood would be shaped by Vladimir Jabotinsky, who adopted the concept of Hadar for his new Zionist movement of revisionists. The first time he saw him speak, it was a near religious experience. In Begin's second memoir, White Nights, he describes his reaction to seeing the man live. Quote, you sit there down below and begin to feel in every fiber of your body that you are being lifted up, borne aloft, end quote. Begin had already joined Betar at this point after attending a lecture from another follower of Jabotinsky, Moshe Steiner. He threw himself into the work. He would wear his Betar militaristic uniform everywhere except for high school where it was not allowed. A few years later at his wedding, he and his bride, Eliza, would marry in their Betar uniforms. Jabotinsky was at his protege's side. Betar became Begin's identity. And he rose quickly through the ranks. He was a superb speaker, even at a young age. Gordis, in his book, says that Begin would deliver his speeches in Yiddish to reach the Jewish everyman. One Lithuanian observer once said that Begin spoke from the soul of the shtetl, which were the small villages that were in the pale of settlement where Jews were allowed to live in Russia, Poland, Belarus, etc., 
You find this oratory genius throughout Begin's career. As prime minister, in one of his famous moments, he denounces German Chancellor Helmut Schmidt's recommendation that Israel should pursue negotiations for a Palestinian state. And here I want to read a translation over Begin's remarks at the Knesset in Hebrew, because you really have to hear his inflection to get the full effect. So I'm going to play a little bit of that first. Mr. Schmidt, Chancellor, forgive me, my dear. I was in the underground resistance. I'm not afraid of anyone. I will tell him the truth to his face. I have nothing to fear. We saw death in front of our eyes every day. So when he says such things, I should remain quiet? Do I not know what happened to my people? Do I not know what happened to my family? Do I not know what happened to your brothers and sisters? Do I not know? And after all of this, he comes and tells us to make a Palestinian state? Putting three and a half million Jews in the state of Israel in danger of death and annihilation? Should I not respond? I responded exactly the way I should have. I don't take back a single word that I said. And then pulls on his nose and pretends to twist it and says, if there are a few enlightened people who turn up their noses, so let them have crooked noses. End quote. I love that. Begin's rhetorical gifts really were one of his superpowers. He was not particularly charismatic, and as a young boy, he was thin and weak. He would often be beaten up when he attended secular schools by the non-Jewish students, and he would occasionally, when he was in high school, travel around with another Beitar member who would effectively be his bodyguard. He would never face real combat either as a soldier. I mean, he served in the Free Polish Army and commanded the Jewish underground in British Mandate Palestine, but his ability to connect to the soul of Jews everywhere in the world with his words. Well, that's what made him at such a young age a formidable rival to both Jabotinsky and later the leader of the Jewish community in Palestine, David Ben-Gurion. So Beitar entirely consumes Begin as a young man. He didn't have girlfriends. He didn't go to sporting events. He didn't drink. There's a funny passage in his first memoir about his debates with the author and journalist Arthur Kessler about whether it was a disadvantage that Jews tended to be teetotalers. Kessler thought it would make diplomacy for a new Jewish state harder because so much state business is done over alcohol. That is true. But Begin argued that sobriety was something to be admired about the Jewish people, and perhaps the Gentiles could learn this trait from the Jews. In 1937, Begin met the love of his life, Eliza Arnold, a serious young woman who was only 19 at the time. She suffered from asthma, and she was as into Beitar as Bacon. Anyway, Menachem was smitten. After their first encounter, he sent her a note that read, I saw you for the first time, but I feel I've known you for my whole life. At the end of their next meeting, Bacon met Eliza's parents and asked for her hand in marriage, and they were wed in 1939. As I said earlier, Jabotinsky was Bacon's best man. By his wedding, Begin was the head of Beitar in Poland, which at the time had 90,000 members. As Begin's stature grew, he also began to clash with Jabotinsky. In the 1930s, Jabotinsky believed in teaching Jews self-defense for sure, and Beitar was really, that was a very important ideal for Beitar. But he opposed turning the Zionist project into a military struggle against the British, who had colonized the land of Palestine. So Begin really disagreed with this. He would amend the Beitar Pledge for new recruits in 1938 at the Third International Beitar Conference in Warsaw. So the original oath, Jabotinsky's language, said, only in defense shall I raise my hand. And Begin amended it to read, I will prepare my hand for the defense of my people 
and for the conquest of my homeland. The conference adopted Begin's language over Jabotinsky. So Jabotinsky, exiled in 1930 from Palestine by the British, traveled the world tirelessly, building support for his cause. In 1940, on a trip to New York, his heart failed. His last words were, I'm so tired. Begin's mentor was gone, and by now the Nazis and Soviets had aligned. These two totalitarian armies invade Poland in 1939. Begin, Eliza, and a few of their comrades fled initially from Poland to Romania, leaving their families and 90,000 Betarniks behind. The trip was perilous. War had broken out. Their train was bombed. And eventually, the Begins ended up in Vilnius, Lithuania, a free city at the time, but not for much longer. The moment Stalin's Red Army entered Vilnius, Begin was giving a speech at a conference at the Polish-Lithuanian University. In the middle of his remarks, a young boy burst into the auditorium to announce that Soviet tanks were in the city's center. As the panicked audience began to leave and rustle, Begin led them in a rendition of Hatikva, a song about longing to return to the homeland of the Jews, and a song that after 1948 became Israel's national anthem. Now that Vilnius was under Stalin's control, it would only be a matter of time until the knock on Begin's door came from the dreaded NKVD, the Soviet predecessor to the brutal KGB intelligence service. Begin had prepared young Elisa for such a fate on their wedding day, telling her that there will be arrests. At first, Begin ignored summons to the police headquarters. He moved with Elisa and another couple to a nearby farming village. Eventually, though, the knock did come. And when it did, Begin very deliberately polished his shoes, informed his friend Eldad that he was forfeiting their chess match, and bid goodbye to Elisa. It was 1941, and Elisa was stoic as she watched the secret police take her husband away, knowing full well that most political prisoners then, in the clutches of the NKVD, never came home. Begin, too, was calm, even though his torment was just beginning. Upon his arrest, he was taken to Vilna's Lukishki prison, where he was forced for nearly three days to sit on a chair in a darkened room with his knees pressed against the wall. This experience brought out one of Begin's greatest qualities, his resilience. If you want to know how a man could summon the fortitude and perseverance and patience to continue to seek political power after losing elections for 29 years, well, you should start with Begin's experience in the Soviet penal system. In photographs of Begin as an inmate, his head is shaved, his face is gaunt, and really, he looks like he could have been at Buchenwald or Dachau. He subsisted on three meals of watery porridge a day. I want to read from his first memoir, The Revolt, from 1951. Begin had just been sent to solitary for seven days after a guard overheard him crack an off-color Yiddish joke. Quote, Having only three and a half paces within which to move my body in that triangular, windowless, smelly cell, I had to make up for it by mental exercise. Those 170 hours were not very pleasant. I was given nothing to eat but dry bread and water. But there were worse things. There was dirt in very large quantities. The sanitary pail was never taken out. There was a bare bone floor. For a pillow, I had to use my arm, a rather small, hard, and painful pillow. By day, it was too hot, and at night, freezing cold. In addition, I was entertained by a thriving colony of rats, but I survived it." End quote. Begin would never forget his time as a political prisoner. Nearly 40 years later, as prime minister, he ordered Israel's domestic security service, the Shin Bet, to refrain from torture, an order that was not always followed, we should say. But I want to dwell for a moment on his time in the gulag system because it gives an insight into the man's sheer willpower. For example, 
He talks about a philosophy in the work camps or gulags. You will get used to it. This means that all the deprivations over time will become part of your normal life and you will no longer miss the comforts of the civilized world. And here, I want to quote again from the revolt. This is powerful stuff. Quote, when you find the first louse on your body, your whole being is revolted. But no matter, you'll get used to it. Soon you will get used to doing without a clean shirt and to the hundreds of lice which cover what used to be your clean underclothes. The first louse is a terrifying creature. The hundredth is an accepted neighbor. It is no longer repulsive. It is part of your existence. End quote. I find that very profound, by the way. Now, despite these horrid conditions, Bagan still retained his hadar. In his first dungeon in Vilnius, he would argue with his interrogator into the evening about the merits of Zionism and insist on reviewing the transcripts of these sessions. And occasionally he would even make corrections, insisting, for example, that he would admit to being a member of Betar as opposed to confessing, which implied guilt. Despite his incarceration, Begin remained a proud Jew. On Yom Kippur, for example, he would refuse his meager rations, which is a day that Jews fast. My favorite story here comes from White Knights. For the holiday of Pesach, where Jews recount the story of the exodus from Egypt over the course of a feast that features four glasses of wine, Begin, along with another Jewish prisoner, rationed the coffee that they were allowed to keep in the camp. There was no alcohol, obviously. So that it would be a substitute for those four glasses of wine. He managed to have a Seder with his cellmate in the dark of night, despite the great risk the guards would find out. And it's worth savoring this irony. Such a Seder, where after drinking each cup of rationed coffee, these prisoners would say, we once were slaves in Egypt, but now we are free. Now, one reason that Begin survived this ordeal was that he had so much to live for. He was devoted to Elisa. She was the light of his world. During his detention, he received a handkerchief that contained a secret message from his bride. Embroidered into the fabric was O-L-A, a transliteration of the Hebrew word to go up, to go to Eretz, Yisrael. Elisa was in Palestine, and Begin wanted nothing more than to join her. Just as things appeared hopeless in the Gulag, Hitler double-crossed Stalin, and in June of 1941, the Nazis invaded the Soviet Union. Begin would be transferred to a re-education camp, which was brutal, but eventually he was enlisted into what was known as the Free Polish Army, a Polish division trained by the Red Army that would fight the Nazis, and he was soon off to the front. Begin's journey out of Russia took him to the Soviet-Afghan border, the other new recruits. He traveled with their military convoy through Iran and into Iraq, Transjordan, and finally to British Mandate Palestine. As he arrived, he greeted a group of children, announcing that the Beitar commander had arrived. Eliza was waiting for him in Haifa after spending days trying to learn his whereabouts. It was now 1942. Menachem Begin was home. When he arrived at the border of Palestine, he stopped at a lush green expanse of grass and writes in the revolt 
that he drank in the odor of the fields of my homeland. He was lucky. He would soon learn his entire family from Brisk would be slaughtered. Begin's proud father was marched with other Jewish men in Brisk to a riverbank. The whole time he sang traditional prayers and the Nazis then murdered him. His mother was dragged out of a hospital and killed as well, as was his older brother and sister. Gone. In the revolt, Begin writes, fate had played a peculiar joke on me. In early June 1941, I had begun my journey northward from Lukishki. In early May 1942, I reached Eretz Yisrael. The Soviets had charged Begin with being a British agent of imperialism. He was initially sentenced to nine years in the camps. Little did the NKVD know that Begin would soon be hunted by the British police. Bacon would continue his commission with the Free Polish Army for two more years. He spent much of his time in Jerusalem as a clerk, in his office there, and wrote under a pseudonym in a few newspapers. Bacon still considered himself a Beitar commander. Eventually, in 1943, a small underground militia, the Irguns Ve Luimi, also known as Etzel for its Hebrew initials, selected Bacon as their new leader. Eliyahu Lankin delivered the message from the commanders. At first, Begin protested, acknowledging that he didn't really have any combat experience, which was true. But the officers knew that Etzel needed a political leader now, more than a tactician, and Begin certainly was that. It wasn't unprecedented, by the way, to put a politician in, in charge of the Etzel. Jabotinsky was briefly its commander until he died suddenly in 1940. And then it went to David Azrael, the commander killed in 1942 in Baghdad. Finally, Yaakov Meridor, who was his deputy, took over and was not only in charge, but Meridor himself wanted Begin. The Etzel, or sometimes known as the Irgun, only had 1,200 fighters in 1944, but they were devoted and courageous warriors. Begin would not formally announce his new position until he had received an honorable discharge from the Free Polish Army. And that day came on January 26th. Begin issued a communique announcing that he was in charge of the Etzel. Six days later, his organization declared war on the British. The group plastered Mandate Palestine with posters that blared to the Hebrew nation in Zion. It demanded a sovereign state and a Jewish army. No more ceasefire in the land of Israel. It was a message, of course, for the British. But like all of Begin's actions, he was also speaking to his own tribe. In bold type, the heading of the last paragraph on the poster said Jews with an exclamation point. It read... Our fighting youth will not be deterred by victims' blood and suffering. They will not surrender, will not rest until they restore our past glory, until they ensure our people of a homeland, freedom, honor, bread, justice, and law. And if you help them, then your own eyes will soon behold the return to Zion and the rebirth of Israel. May God be with us and aid us. Talk about Hadar. Now. The date here is very important. That was February 1st, 1944. The British are still fighting the Nazis, and the Yeshuv, which is the semi-autonomous Jewish community in Mandate Palestine, had a policy not to attack the British Empire as it was fighting the Axis powers. That was the view of David Ben-Gurion, Israel's first prime minister and Israel's founding father. In 1944, though, David Ben-Gurion was not the leader of an independent state. He was the Jewish boss of a British colony. 
and the British policy in 1944 was very different than what it was in 1917 when Parliament adopted Lord Balfour's declaration calling for the creation of a Jewish homeland. In the 1930s, the British began to renege on that promise. In 1936, the Peel Commission recommended the partition of Palestine, with two separate states for Arabs and Jews. Then in 1939, under Neville Chamberlain, the UK changed its policy again with the MacDonald White Paper, which called for a state to be jointly governed by Jews and Arabs, but crucially limited Jewish immigration to Palestine to 75,000 between 1939 and 1944. So in 1939, most of the world did not know what Hitler had in store for the Jews of Europe. But by February 1, 1944, the day that Etzel declared its rebellion, the Yeshuv knew full well that the immigration restrictions put forward in the white paper left millions of Jews in Europe with no place to escape Hitler's ovens. The empire was effectively locking Jews inside a prison, and this radicalized Begin. In particular, he despised the MacDonald white paper, which he said was a cynical effort to make it appear that Great Britain had honored the commitments of Balfour while ensuring that Jews would remain a minority in their ancestral homeland. In the revolt, Begin Riley observes, the difficulty lay in the unfortunate desire of Jews to save their lives and run away from Hitler. So what did that policy actually mean? Well, in this period, the Yeshuv kind of had an approach to all of this, which was, we will fight the Nazis as if there was no white paper, and we will fight the white paper as if there were no Nazis. And in reality, what that meant is that the Jewish council, led by Ben-Gurion, would certainly assist illegal immigration of Jews to Palestine from Europe, saving as many lives as they could. But they would not turn their semi-official militia, known at the time as the Haganah, on the British. Ben-Gurion was pinning his hopes on Churchill, who himself had expressed support for a Jewish state. He was promised that the British army would train a Jewish division and thought this would be the ideal way to create a national army. Plus, Churchill was not Chamberlain. He supported the Zionist goal, at least, but he was also trying to win a war against Adolf Hitler. So between 1917 and 1945, for the most part, the Haganah was, I guess you could call it sort of a defensive militia that would protect Jewish communities from Arab raiders before the British police would get there. But by 1944, the Yeshuv was beginning to split. The Haganah and Ben-Gurion opposed guerrilla warfare against the British while the Allies still fought the Axis. Menachem Begin's approach, though, maybe is best captured by Jack Nicholson's opening monologue in The Departed. 20 years after an Irishman couldn't get a fucking job, we had the presidency. May rest in peace. That's what the niggas don't realize. If I got one thing against the black chappies, it's this. No one gives it to you. You have to take it. Bacon believed the only way Her Majesty would end its meager quotas for Jewish immigration was armed resistance. Nobody gives it to you. You have to take it. Well, that put Menachem Bacon in the crosshairs of the colonizers. The British placed a bounty of 10,000 pounds sterling on his head. So Bacon changed his identities. Eventually, he grew out his beard, dressed in talit, and carried a prayer book wherever he went. For the next few years, Menachem Begin would be known as Rabbi Israel Sassover. He was going underground.
So this is what life was like for Menachem Begin when he was hiding from the British authorities. Every morning, a Metzel operative, always a woman, would bring him stacks of newspapers, cigarettes, and groceries. He would read, smoke, listen to the radio, and plot. One of the few times he got to spend time with more than one or two people was when he went to shul. After all, he was sort of a junior rabbi, which he went to often to build up his cover, and also because of the exercise involved in intense prayer. When you're davening, you have to get up and stand up and rock back and forth. Other than that, his contact with people was really limited to the Etzel carriers and then the Etzel high command at his family's in a series of safe houses and places where they lived under this identity of the Sassovers. Begin, of course, would try to spend his evenings with his wife and newborn baby, Benny Begin, but there were times he would not be able to risk that journey. The British really were hunting the man. So on some evenings, he had to stay at a safe house that belonged to Yaakov Tabin, the Etzel spy chief. There was only one narrow bed in that apartment that he had to share with Tabin and his wife, Miriam. In his biography of Begin, Avi Shilon quotes Begin as telling Tabin, quote, We don't have a decent place to spend the night hours while others our age are happily lounging in cafes. Jewish complacency. But do not be angry. They will learn by our way, by the way of the rifle. What happened in Europe will not happen here, end quote. Sometimes, though, he would arrange to see visitors, and after the end of World War II, Begin, who was still underground, pressed for a meeting with his friend Arthur Kessler. We should say Kessler is the author of one of the most important books of the 20th century and a great piece of anti-authoritarian literature known as Darkness at Noon, and in my view, is probably one of the best critiques of Stalinism ever committed to the page. Kessler had a fascinating ideological journey. He was at first a Marxist, then after Stalin's purges, he became one of the Soviet Union's harshest critics. And then he discovers Jabotinsky and revisionist Zionism and throws himself at least journalistically into that cause. He would later embrace fanciful theories about the mind and the origin of European Jews, but that's for a different monologue, not this one. At this moment, Kessler was covering the war for Israeli independence for the Times of London. So Begin's deputies advised against their leader meeting with Kessler. They really were wary of any outsiders ever kind of knowing that he was Menachem Begin. No one could know that Rabbi Sassover was this notorious outlaw. But eventually, because Begin was persistent, they relented. But they had a condition. The meeting had to be entirely in the dark. Kessler could not be allowed to see Begin with his rabbinic beard. And so they met in total darkness at a hotel. And each time one of them had to light a cigarette, they had to do so in another room. Now, it's important here to point out, by the time of this meeting, the British had been chasing Begin for nearly four years. They couldn't get him. They believed at one point that he had plastic surgery and no longer looked like the mustachioed, head-shaven maniac of his wanted poster. Begin respected Kessler, we should say, and admired his work, but he was not above using him for the Etzel's advantage. And here we get an insight into Begin's understanding of political warfare in the media, not just, you know, this very interesting kind of story about his interview with Arthur Kessler. So I want to read now from The Revolt, quote, we later concluded that the meeting with Kessler reinforced the rumor that I had undergone a plastic operation, a rumor widely current among the British authorities. I believe they invented it themselves in order to explain why their intelligence service, in spite of the searches, the promised prizes, and the shadowings, had failed to lay hands on me, end quote. Begin then goes on to describe how his deputy, Yaakov Meridor, dangled out a little disinformation 
when a British intelligence officer interrogated him in Cairo. Quote, Is it true that Begin has had a plastic operation? Yaakov replied in unconcealed panic and confusion. How did you know that? No, no, it's not true. The intelligence officer was delighted. He was sure he had wrung the secret from Yaakov. Kessler apparently added another brick to the imaginative structure of the police. He was, of course, under no obligation not to reveal what I did not look like. He was very surprised that I received him in the darkness. End quote. So Begin reflects that Kessler did not know he was, of course, a rabbi living, you know, under this identity of Rabbi Sassover. But Kessler kept peppering him with questions about the plastic surgery. It was like the hottest gossip in London and, you know, in the, in the British Empire at the time. And Begin kept giving him these cryptic non-answers, laying the bait. After the interview, a spate of stories appeared in the British press claiming that British intelligence had confirmed that Begin had his face surgically altered. Kessler could not resist sharing such tasty gossip, apparently, with his colleagues in the press corps. Quote, now again from the revolt, here's Begin again, we were highly pleased at these reports. We were even more pleased when we read in a popular British newspaper that I had not one plastic operation, but four, no less. When I left the underground and was asked by newspaper men, mainly Americans, what truth there was in these stories, I felt I had to reply. Quite true, I had four plastic operations, but just before the British left, I had a fifth to restore my original face. End quote. Isn't that terrific? Okay, so it was an often desolate, at times dreary and uncomfortable life for Rabbi Sassover in the underground. But in between these long hours of isolation, Menachem Begin planned a rebellion that thrilled him. So the first Etzel operations after the February 1st declaration were simultaneous bombs at three British intelligence stations in Palestine. Begin could not believe that they were successful. He thought two bombs would probably fail at the least, but all three at once? Well, it sent a message that there would be consequences to allowing Europe's Jews to perish in concentration camps. For Begin, the Etzel's operations were a form of political expression. Consider here Operation Wall, which takes place several months later. The goal was clear on Yom Kippur 1944, a dark time for our people. The Jews in the city of gold, that's Jerusalem, would pray at the remains of their second temple, despite a clear policy by the British to bar such activity. The shofar, a ram's horn turned into a trumpet, would blow. Any British officer who obstructed the playing of the shofar would be deemed a criminal by the Jewish underground. An Etzel communique said, this was again the propaganda of the deed as a tactic. It's not that different than placing a bomb at a CIA recruiting station. And the deed in this case was not as bloody as operations to come. All the Etzel did in this case was warn the British ahead of time and their police retreated on Yom Kippur and the shofar blew. And the Etzel also didn't show up, so there was not even a scuffle. Now, of course, the British were back as soon as the Day of Atonement was over, but nonetheless, a message was delivered. And the White Panther, you know, you can sort of see the parallel with the White Panther bombing of a CIA office at the University of Michigan in 1969. That did not achieve any kind of military objective. It didn't stop the CIA from recruiting on the campus of the University of Michigan. But it began to change the perceptions of students, the administration, and the wider public. Etzel's Operation Wall did not force the British to allow Jewish prayer at the remains of their second temple, but it did establish in the mind of the Jewish people in Palestine that armed resistance could get results, if even for just a day. So, 
At first, the response from Ben-Gurion was muted after the February 1st declaration of war by Etzel. Begin's militia was accelerating, though, its pace of operations. After Etzel fighters bombed in March three British police stations, the Yeshuv had to respond with more than just a few press releases or rote condemnations. At the first hearings of the government council of the Yeshuv, the future prime minister, Golda Meir, wanted Begin's head. According to Avi Shilon's biography, quote, Golda Meir could not restrain herself and demanded that the dissidents be physically eliminated. Ben-Gurion responded, partly sarcastically and partly concerned, and asked in a typical manner, what if they retaliate? End of quote. Interesting, by the way, Golda, she, she, didn't have, she was not a, a sentimental type, you could say. She, she, didn't, she wanted Begin dead. Okay, so here it's important to understand the thinking of the Yishuv in the spring of 1944. As I said earlier, their policy was to refrain from any attacks on the British while the British fought the Nazis. Okay, that makes sense. Ben-Gurion also still held out hope the British would train this future army for the state of Israel. Add to this, the British were demanding the Yishuv to assist its efforts to find and arrest the leadership of Etzel and another even smaller underground group, which we'll get to a little bit later, known as the Lakai. Okay. But there was something else that was going on as well. And here Ben-Gurion, the state builder, was thinking of the larger picture. No state can exist in the absence of a monopoly of violence. Israel can only have one army, not three. And Begin's underground was a threat to the future of the Jewish state in this respect. This is why the commander of the Haganah, Eliyahu Golem, said at a press conference in April that the Yishuv, quote, has a moral obligation to put an end to the terrorist phenomenon, end quote. Okay, so Begin also supports a single Jewish national army once there is a Jewish state. Throughout 1944, he had secret meetings with senior Haganah commanders, and they acted as emissaries for Ben-Gurion. And one of them, by the way, was the legendary General Moshe Dayan, who kind of is known, you know, historically for always wearing an eye patch because he lost an eye while fighting in Syria. And Dayan, even though he was a Ben-Gurion guy all the way, would end up serving as a foreign minister in Begin's government after 1977. Begin also believed that the only way to get the British to allow European Jews to come home to Eretz Yisrael was through force. So you could see that Begin was also a kind of complex thinker. He based this in part on a careful reading of the British response to the Arab revolts of the late 1930s. And the response from the British was to renege on Balfour, and to appoint one of the leaders of these riots, Haj Amin al-Husseini, as the de facto leader of the Arab community. We should say that Haj Amin al-Husseini was appointed to this position Grand Mufti of Jerusalem after he had led riots going back to 1920. Okay, so if Arab violence wrought British concessions, why wouldn't Jewish violence do the same? Well, a different leader than David Ben-Gurion may have understood that Begin's intentions here were not as sinister as Ben-Gurion imagined, and he would seek to flatter such a man and allow him to honorably fold the Etzel into the Haganah. After all, they agreed on like 90% or 95% of the most important stuff, which is like, we need an independent Israel, we need to create a national army, the British can't colonize this place any, you know, much longer, we have to stop this terrible policy on the immigration. But Ben-Gurion really, really, really despised Menachem Begin. And to be fair, that feeling was mutual. Ben-Gurion believed that Begin was his only real rival. We talked about his great oratory skills to lead a future Jewish state. And that Begin himself was so impetuous and melodramatic 
that he would lead Israel to ruin if he ever became the leader of the new country. So, you know, Ben-Gurion just could never get his head around about, in his view, in his mind, what a scumbag Menachem Begin was. And meanwhile, Begin didn't like Ben-Gurion very much. He remembered that Ben-Gurion often clashed with his mentor, Jabotinsky, and he remembered that there was this policy that the Yeshuv supported, which, you know, would limit immigration to almost no Betarniks were allowed to come to Palestine, and that, you know, the Yeshuv would work to basically make sure that labor Zionists were the ones who were coming into the country. And, you know, Begin also, we should say, at the second Betar conference, he gave this speech as a young man that opposed a policy of cooperation with labor Zionists that was supported by Jabotinsky himself. And he said in, on the floor of the convention, I still remember that Ben-Gurion called our leader Vladimir Hitler. Okay, so both guys do not like each other. And so he should say that the back channel diplomacy in 1944, well, it led to nothing, unfortunately. Eventually, Ben-Gurion would end up declaring war on the Etzel, and he even collaborated with the British to destroy Begin's underground army. In November of 1944, Ben-Gurion launched the Cezanne, the hunting season. This morning, So the precipitating event that led to the infamous Cezanne was the assassination of Walter Guinness, known as Lord Moyne. He was responsible for the empire's Middle East policy from his perch in Cairo. On November 7th, 1944, after tailing him on bicycles for nearly a week, two operatives, Eliyahu Hakim and Eliyahu Bedzori, approached Guinness and murdered him with their revolvers. The two men did not escape. Now the irony here is that Begin had no knowledge of this operation. It was Lechai, whom the British would call the Stern Gang for its founder, Avram Stern. The Lechai were more radical than the Etzel and smaller. Begin had tried in 1944, he explored the idea of joining forces with the group, but the talks ended up only with a loose agreement between the two underground organizations to not interfere in each other's affairs. It should be said that in 1940, Stern and others formed the Lechai with a few breakaway Etzel commanders. So there was sort of an overlap, just as the Etzel was formed in 1932 with breakaway Haganah commanders. So anyway, it's a small community as it is, so there is, again, some overlap. But it's very important. Etzel is not Lehigh. They were different organizations, and Begin had no idea that Lord Moyne was going to be assassinated. Nonetheless, the response to the assassination was swift from Yeshuv, and Begin and Etzel ended up being largely blamed. So I should say this is still hotly contested in Israel. Abba Ibn has denounced it, you know, when he was alive. And I just want to read a little snippet from a, an interview that was given in 1993 by former Lehi commander and an, a former Israeli prime minister, Yitzhak Shamir, who still defended the situation. He, quote, he was against any Jewish aliyah, any Jewish immigration. He didn't believe that there exists such a thing as a Jewish nation or a Jewish people, and therefore we decided to make this operation. That is Shamir in 1993 at the end of his life. Okay, even though Shamir was responsible 
The target for the Haganah's Palmach, which is their strike force, was Begin and his deputies. Lechai did the crime, but Etzel did the time. The Yeshuv was in a difficult position. The British put the squeeze on Ben-Gurion to assist their efforts this time to dismantle the Jewish underground. He had resisted, by the way, earlier in 1944. So on November 11th, Ben-Gurion told the Yeshuv, quote, it would be no disaster were some of the men to sit in prison for some time. It would be much better than having Jews hanged, and Jews, Arabs, and the British would not be murdered in the name of the Jewish people, end quote. On November 11th, Ben-Gurion crossed a line that he did not cross back in April of 1944. Back then, he insisted that to counter Etzel, it had to be done by Jews in-house and not on behalf of the British Empire. After the killing of Lloyd Moyne, Ben-Gurion and the Haganah would turn over Jews to the British. The hunting season was on. There are different estimates to how many prisoners were turned over. The Haganah official records say it's about 700. There are British accounts which say it was up to 1,000. This chapter of Zionist history is often forgotten, but it was quite brutal. And here again, I want to read from Avi Shilon's great biography. Quote, The Cezanne was designed to break Etzel's spirit. Its members were beaten up, some were handed over to the British, and most were jailed in detention rooms prepared in advance in several kibbutzim. The kibbutzim are the collective farms that were sort of part of the early Zionist movement. They still exist in Israel today, although they're much more lavish. But back then, they were you know, very bare-bones affairs. Anyway, Shilon goes on to describe a detention room in Ein Harad kibbutz. It was a small hut hidden beneath bales of hay. The small prison, or I should say the small cage, really, allowed no light into it, and those detained inside were kept in darkness 24 hours a day. So during the saison, Begin's intelligence chief, who we met earlier, Yaakov Tabin, he was chained to a bed for six months in a cave. His captors would conduct mock executions, trying to get him to talk. The Cezanne even led the Haganah and Ben-Gurion to persecute the children of Etzel leaders, expelling 30 of them from school. And despite all of this pressure, neither the Haganah nor the British were ever able to track down Rabbi Sassover, a.k.a. Menachem Begin. Amazing. Okay, so more extraordinary, though, was Begin's approach in the middle of this horrible persecution that was being led by fellow Jews in the land of Israel. So after months of this relentless hunting season, Begin addressed his soldiers in secret. Because, of course, remember, nobody could know what the real Menachem Begin now looked like. So he addressed, you know, Etzel fighters behind a curtain so no one could see him, protecting his identity. He implored them to practice restraint. He bellowed that there will be no fratricidal war. He reminded that audience their true enemy was the British. And then he pulled out a blank sheet of paper. Quote, the boundary between purity and contamination is as thin as this sheet of paper. Be careful not to cross it. End quote. Begin never forgot the Cezanne and never forgave Ben-Gurion for turning fellow Jews over to the British. But he also saw the larger picture. He saw himself as a link in the chain of Jewish history and knew all too well the perils of fratricide. Here he is at the end of his life in an interview with Shalom TV. Uh, there was the so-called season for nine months when the men of the Irgun were handed over to the British police, kidnapped, tortured, and I uh, ordered our men not to raise the hand against their uh, uh, persecutors. And for nine months, men 
who were some of the best underground fighters, not only in our country, perhaps in the world, recognized by others as such, didn't raise a finger when they were dragged from their homes during the night and then handed over to the British police. How many other rebel leaders would have put up with this kind of persecution for nine months? How many armed resistance movements turn into tyrannies because their leaders refuse to yield to democratic institutions? And Begin in this respect is really one of a kind. The Jewish terrorist organization, Irgunzwei Leomi, openly admitted responsibility for the bombing. Many arrests have been made. Leaders of the Jewish agency have expressed horror at the dastardly crime perpetrated by a gang of desperados. Mr. Attlee in the House of Commons declared, the British government will not be diverted by acts of violence in their search for a just and final solution of the Palestine problem. That was a snippet of a British newsreel on the bombing of the King David Hotel on July 22, 1946. At the time, the hotel housed the Empire's military headquarters for Palestine on its top two floors. It was a watershed event for the history of terrorism in a sense, even though it was technically a military target. Many civilians were killed, 91 people perished, and 49 were injured. The dead included 42 Arabs, 28 British citizens, and 17 Jews. When Begin first heard reports about the bombing on his radio, he flew into a rage, asking an aid why civilians were not warned as the plans for the operation made clear. His Etzel had been planning it for more than a year, and that plan called for warnings for people to leave. So what went wrong? And as Begin grew more and more agitated and angrier and angrier, a deputy of his decided to take it upon himself to pull the tubes out of the radio set so that Begin's ire might subside. So here I want to play a clip from Bruce Hoffman, an analyst at the RAND Corporation, explaining that the operation was a milestone in the history of modern terrorism because of how it attracted the attention of the world. I think it was one of these acts of violence that ahead of its time, I mean, in an era before CNN, before instantaneous news, was choreographed precisely to attract international attention. Right, so the official narrative of the King David bombing, like what we heard in that newsreel, was that Etzel and the Etzel alone conceived and executed this act of terror, but we should say that narrative is false. To start, in this period, the Haganah, Etzel, and Lechai had formed a unified resistance front. After the end of World War II and the election of labor politician Clement Attlee as prime minister, Ben-Gurion and the Jewish council finally came around to Begin's position and acknowledged that British policy on Jewish immigration to Palestine would not change. Something had to be done. You could say it was a wake-up call, a Hebrew wake-up call. And the King David operation itself was approved by the panel that authorized military actions for this new unified resistance. It was called Committee X. The Etzel did plan the particulars, that is true. But the Haganah and Ben-Gurion were well aware of and approved the plot. Begin himself, by the way, had in his records a handwritten note from Moshe Sneh, a senior Haganah commander, saying as much. The bombing was part of a period in Israel's independence movement when the underground and the yeshiv were fighting together, as I said. The Haganah, for example, pulled off that spring a daring operation that disabled all of the bridges in and out of Palestine. Remarkable work, if you think about it, to be all done at the same time. And it crippled the supply routes for the British army. The British then respond with something known as the Black Sabbath, when several settlements and kibbutzim were raided and Haganah fighters were jailed. Now, the King David 
bombing followed that Black Sabbath, and the Etzel operatives, dressed as laborers, they smuggled the explosives into the hotel in large milk canisters. It had appeared to be a routine resupply for the hotel that relied on local farms in and around Jerusalem for much of its food and beverage. Once inside, the explosives were deployed and signs were put up warning in Arabic, English, and Hebrew to leave the hotel and stay away from the containers. An operative phoned in a threat that the hotel would be bombed in 30 minutes. It was ignored. According to Etzel Records, another operative warned a high-ranking British official in person who responded, I do not come here to take orders from Jews. Unclear whether that actually happened, by the way. Despite his foreknowledge and approval of the bombing, Ben-Gurion was quick to distance himself. The Jewish agency, which managed affairs in the Yishuv, released a statement that deplored the, quote, dastardly crime perpetrated by a gang of desperados. End quote. The Haganah as well denied any involvement. Begin, though, took the credit and the blame. For decades, his reputation would be tarnished in the West. He would be considered a terrorist for an operation approved by the entire Jewish community in Palestine. But that's just how it was. Now, the King David bombing to this day is often deployed as a kind of talking point in the defense of Palestinian terrorism. Israel's fifth prime minister was a terrorist. What about the King David Hotel? But again, if you compare the precautions that admittedly failed and the desire at least to avoid civilian casualties to say, I don't know, pick anyone, Black September's kidnapping and murder of the Israeli wrestling team at the 1972 Munich Olympics, the differences are stark. Since the beginning of the conflict more than a century ago, Palestinians have attacked the most vulnerable targets in Israel. They have sought to maximize civilian casualties, synagogues, schools, kibbutzim, peace concerts. Begin's Etzel attacked the British military headquarters and warned people to leave. Sadly, they did not, and many innocents died, but that was not the intention. So, whatever you want to say about this, and we could do an entire episode just on the King David bombing, because it's a fascinating kind of chapter in history, we should say, seven months after that bombing, the British lowered the Union Jack above its administrative buildings in Palestine and announced intention to leave. Before the British left, however... That unified resistance, it split apart because of the King David bombing. All right. On May 16, 1948, David Ben-Gurion announced the creation of an independent Jewish state in Israel. There was already a low-level war between the Palestinian Arabs and the Yishuv at this time. But between the UN's vote to adopt the partition of Israel, which Ben-Gurion accepted and the Palestinian leadership opposed at the time, the declaration of Israel's independence was seen by its Arab neighbors as a declaration of war. Notably missing from the independence ceremony, by the way, was Menachem Begin, who gave his own address on Etzel's radio following evening after the Sabbath ended from an apartment in Tel Aviv. Two weeks after Ben-Gurion's address, Begin agreed in principle to fold the Etzel into the new Israeli defense forces. This ship brings to the new state of Israel its most tragic hour, Beached off Tel Aviv during the night, it is manned by troops of the Irgun, irregular and dissenting faction of the Jewish fighting forces, who are determined to land a huge cargo of ammunition. On shore, Haganah, Israeli regulars, forbid the landing as an open violation of the United Nations troops, now in force in all Palestine. As the Irgunists hit the beach, open battle breaks out. Okay, this is where we're going to the sort of final chapter of this long monologue. We just heard a newsreel from June of 1948. A ship called the Altalena, named for one of Jabotinsky's pseudonyms when he was a journalist, had just arrived on the shores of Tel Aviv. It was carrying 
a massive stock of arms and a group of Jewish refugees rescued from Europe's displacement camps. Begin originally wanted to delay the arrival of the Altalena. The UN had opposed a ceasefire lasting 28 days at the end of May between the Arabs and the Jews. But part of that resolution was an arms embargo on Israel. It still allowed arms shipments, by the way, to Iraq, Egypt, and Jordan, which of course would end up in the hands of the Palestinians. So I think it was unfair to the Jewish forces, but there was a UN arms embargo in place at the time. So the Altalena would have violated the UN ceasefire's terms. Begin initially telegrams Yaakov Katz, one of his lieutenants who was in charge of procuring the ship and urged him to delay. The problem was he never got that message. He was already at sea. Then he had an assistant message the ship and urged them not to come ashore when they were in Crete, but the clerk used the wrong code and the message wasn't received. After the BBC reports on the ship's journey, Begin sheepishly informs Ben-Gurion and the Yeshuv about the Altalena. Here I want to read from Daniel Gordis again, quote, Begin held a meeting with government officials emphasizing that the ship had set sail without his permission. Ben-Gurion understood well both the problem of the arms embargo, but also the value of the munitions on board. He was clear. Israel needed to keep the arms, but to avoid endangering the Tel Aviv port, he instructed the ship to approach shore at Kafar Vitkin, north of Tel Aviv, which was relatively hidden from potential UN observers, end quote. Now, this is very important, because as we know from this episode, David Ben-Gurion, in this period, had a very bad habit of lying about Etzel operations for which he was informed. Begin offered to give 80% of the arms of the Altalena to the IDF, arms that were desperately needed, by the way, in this fight. And 20% he would reserve for his fighters in Jerusalem. That was Begin's offer. But Ben-Gurion would not have it. He was on a power trip. One can understand why, of course. There has to be one leader. So he countered that all of the arms must go to the National Army. Remember, at this point, Begin had agreed in principle already to fold Otsel into the new National Army. Ben-Gurion was focused like a laser on this problem that we talked about during the Cezanne, the monopoly of violence. There would be no two separate or three separate armies in the new Jewish state. One of his aides, General Galili, and also one of his closest advisors, he proposed at first that he would purchase the weapons and then agreed eventually with Begin that 20% would go to Jerusalem without specifying that they would go to Etzel. So as the Altalena sailed closer to the shore, Ben-Gurion told advisors the IDF may have to fire on the Etzel ship. Israel's provisional government on June 20th, 1948, issued a statement that read in part, quote, the provisional government and the high command of defense forces wish to make clear that they are determined to stamp out immediately this traitorous attempt to deny the authority of the state of Israel and of its representatives, end quote. Now think of this from Begin's perspective. He tried his best to stop the ship. He radioed unsuccessfully to the Altalina to not land right away. And he informed Ben-Gurion about the whole thing. Begin showed his respect for a unified military and a single Jewish state. Ben-Gurion, on the other hand, was cutting off his country's nose to spite its face. Israel in 1948 was not the military power it is today, armed by America, the world's most powerful military. It was a ragtag group of idealists and refugees that needed as many guns as they could get. The Altalena was a boon, or would have been a boon, for Israel's War of Independence. But Ben-Gurion could not shake his hatred for Begin to, in this moment, see the larger picture. What happened next could have destroyed Israel in its cradle. And I am not exaggerating. Begin never imagined that Ben-Gurion would actually order the new IDF to fire on the Altalena. So when it arrived at Kfar Vitkin, Begin, who had been underground and in hiding since 1944, 
but was now out in the open, he greeted the Etzel soldiers as they began to unload the weapons. It was a huge event for everybody in Betzel, or even for that matter, Betar. You were going to get a chance to see Menachem Begin for the first time in the flesh in nearly five years. The problem was that the IDF was also at Kefarvikin. The next morning, a brigade showed up and the ship was given an ultimatum. You have 10 minutes to surrender the cargo or we will start shooting. Begin ignored it. He thought it was ridiculous. He ordered his men to continue to unload the ship. And then a firefight begins. Now, Begin writes in the revolt, that when he was on the board of the ship, the numbers of wounded were beginning to mount. And here I just want to quote one little thing from the revolt, which I think is important. Some of the shooting was directed at specific targets. Thus, each time I went to the captain's bridge, it was subjected to particularly intense fire. When I left the bridge, the shooting was directed elsewhere. So in that passage of his memoir, and he believed this entire life, Bacon is basically saying at the Altalena, the IDF was trying to kill him. And on the first day of fighting, we should say that six Etzel and two IDF soldiers are killed. Fearing, by the way, demonstrations, Ben-Gurion refuses to allow the Etzel funerals to be held in Tel Aviv. Kind of a dick move. That evening, the Altalena pulled up anchor and set sail down the coast to Tel Aviv. It docked at one of the busiest parts of the beachfront in the city. Begin announces on the ship's loudspeaker, Hello, Tel Aviv, from the Hebrew arms ship. But the IDF was also close by, and the assault continued. And here is, in my view... Menachem Begin's finest hour, because he gives the order again and again and again, don't fire back. He shouts it over the loudspeaker at the ship. Eventually, the IDF brings a cannon to the beach, and after four or five tries, it hits, it connects. There is an explosion. The ship is ablaze. Begin and the other Etzel commanders have to jump into the Mediterranean. The man who had endured the Gulag, the Cezanne, and the underground emerges on the beach at Tel Aviv, haggard, soaking wet, without his trademark eyeglasses that were lost in the ocean. All told, 16 Etzel men lost their lives in the Battle of the Altalena. Ben-Gurion had hundreds more arrested, but he dare not arrest Menachem Begin. He was too well known at that point. The next day, Menachem Begin went on Radio Etzel, and he wept. It was me they wanted to destroy, he said through his tears. Begin was mocked for those tears, but he was the hero that day. He prevented a civil war. And I want to end this episode by quoting Menachem Begin himself reflecting on this moment, because I think these words are a good way to end the episode. Quote, Sometimes, as our revolt against the oppressor taught us, it is essential that blood should take the place of tears. And sometimes, as the Altalena taught us, it is essential that tears should take the place of blood. This should be remembered, particularly by those who shelled the Altalena and killed its men and shot at those, including wounded men, escaping from its flames. Let them not boast in their hearts of that act which somebody urged them to do, nor excuse themselves on his responsibility. Let them remember everything there is to be remembered, beginning with the secret hatching of the plot and ending with the last shell they fired into the burning and bleeding ship. If they remember this, perhaps they will understand the feeling of the man whose life they tried to take. And possibly they may understand that sometimes it is better that one man should pour tears from his heart over an abomination committed in Israel than that many, many should weep over its consequences. And so it came to pass that there was no fratricidal war in Israel to destroy the Jewish state before it was properly born. In spite of everything, there was no 
Civil War. Well, right now, the re-education is really lucky to have one of my one of my real f- favorite authors and sort of Zionist thinkers, Dr. Daniel Gordis. And today we are talking about Menachem Begin. I highly recommend his 2014 biography of Begin. And so thank you so much for coming on the podcast. It's really an honor and a pleasure. I'm an enormous admirer of your work, so I appreciate the invitation. Terrific. So let's get started because you've got a hard stop because of the Sabbath. We are in America, you are in Israel. So I want to start off and sort of ask a a general question, which is, how do you see Menachem Begin's legacy in the context of recent, not just Israeli history, but Jewish history? I think Menachem Begin has been proven right, tragically, in the last four weeks in a way in which he would have been horrified to have been proven right. Okay. Begin was one of those European Jews who did not believe that the world was going to change all that dramatically. He believed that the world had a proclivity towards hating the Jews, and he didn't think that just because the Holocaust was over, that had stopped. He was, I think, like many early Zionist thinkers, including Bialik and others, uh, who said very early on to American Jews, you know, it's all good and well there right now, but one day, and this was their phrasing, One day you will be drinking from the same trough that we are drinking from, i.e. from the same trough of anti-Semitism and so forth. So the first thing that I think Begin would say were he to kind of come back now, which is a way of reflecting on his legacy, is he would say, look, I told you the world doesn't change. And, you know, American students in colleges on Cooper Union campus are barricading themselves in a library. And people in America and Toronto, I just heard from somebody today, are taking mezuzahs off their doors because they're afraid of being publicly identified as Jewish and they're getting all these rabbinic rulings that you can put the mezuzah inside the door, really, in the United States and in Canada in 2023. So the first thing that I think Begin would say is that his belief that the world was fundamentally hostile to the Jews has been proven correct, sadly. And uh, he would take no pleasure in that. But certainly his legacy, I think, seems a little bit less anachronistic than it might have seemed to young Israelis before. I think if he would say to you, a, a person, a young Israeli in his, I guess, early 30s, who I've known for many, many, many years, said to me this week, I can't wait for the Seder. Hmm. And I said, what's the Seder got to do with anything right now? And he said, because there's this line in the, in the Haggadah, which says that in every generation, they rise up against us. And he said, you know, I've been saying that for 30 years. And I, uh, yeah, okay, fine. I never thought about it seriously. And he goes, oh my God, it is so true. That's what we have to talk about this year. And I think Menachem Begin would say, well, I never took it lightly because et cetera, et cetera. That's the first thing. Look, Begin also, I mean, the the second, the the Lebanon war that Begin started, not the second, the first Lebanon war that Begin began, it ended 18 years after he started it. And I think Israelis look at it as a a failed war. 
they look at it as perhaps the first war that Israel got into that it didn't absolutely have to get I mean, sometimes into. Sometimes it's called Israel's Vietnam. Correct. Exactly. Yeah. And it didn't have a lot to show for it, to put it very mildly. And if you look at what's happened to southern Lebanon now, it's much worse than it was when we started the first Lebanon war. But Bacon would still say, I think, that, and he said this specifically about Kiryat Shmona, that Israeli city, small yeah. city on the northern, very, very northern border. He said, I'm not going to have, I'm not going to have Israeli children sleeping in bomb shelters. That is just not why this country was created. And he would say, well, there's a different situation from 1982 to 2023, to be sure. This fundamental reality is no, Jews in Israel cannot be living in a defensive bunker mode. And I have to say, Eli, I know that we're having this conversation on a Friday, and I think it was, it was two days ago or three days, two days ago, we were in Giva time helping take care of my grandchildren because in the building where they live, uh, there's a communal shelter in the basement, but they're not every, it's an old building, so not every apartment has its own safe room. Uh, and so when the siren goes off, you've got 90 seconds to get into the shelter. Mm. And they have two kids, and my, my son is off in the army. So my daughter-in-law, you know, cannot make it down in 90 seconds with two kids. It's just not physically possible. So on days when there's nobody else there with her, we go. And sure enough, the siren went off in the afternoon and both kids were napping. And my wife was holding the baby. So she just ran downstairs with the baby who was already in her arms. And I went into the two-year-old's bedroom and scooped him up and ran down the stairs with him. And then we were in the shelter. We heard this enormous boom and the building shook, but nothing hit anything. But I looked at him and I thought, this is just ridiculous that this kid in a sovereign Jewish state is, is growing up. There's a big noise outside and your parents or your grandparents grab you, run down, you hear a boom, you wait 10 minutes and you go back to your apartment. And Menachem Begin's legacy in large measure is he was not willing to put up with this. His war did not go well and it was not nearly as decisive perhaps as this one may or may not be. I mean, he did, by the way, get Arafat and all of his Tunisia. terrorists out of Lebanon to Tunisia, right? And they didn't come back for many years. So in that regard, it was relatively successful, but Israel did not Israel did not keep Southern Lebanon as safe as it needed to for a very long time. That's a whole other conversation. But I think Begin's, Begin's legacy is going to be burnished as a result of the horrors that we're experiencing. His belief in the perpetual nature of anti-Semitism, his belief in his assertion that Israel cannot be a place where Jewish children have to hide. That's the exact opposite. And the other way, of course, in which his reputation is going to be burnished is that there were people who liked him and there were people who didn't like him. There was nobody who thought he wasn't telling the truth. His most rabid opponents knew he was not lying. They might have disagreed with his positions about letting ultra-Orthodox out of the army, about building settlements, about starting the war, about a whole array of things. But when Shimon Peres, against whom he was running in his second election, accused him of having bombed the reactor, the Osirak reactor in, in Iraq, for the purpose of an election stunt, Bacon just said, are you out of your mind? It's I like mean, guilty who as believes charged. That yeah, I, would, I did it. <laughs> you know, he was said, but who, who believes, who in this country believes that I would put young Jewish men's lives at stake for an election result? And every Israeli believed him. Every Israeli knew that he wouldn't do that. And tragically, we're in a situation now where both Bibi's supporters and his opponents all agree that when he gets on television now, you can't really know what's true. Yeah. And so we're facing now a situation where the country has little faith in the government because it's been so absent. And when the government does speak, nobody really believes what it's saying. Mm. And that's a wild, that's a wildly divergent 
position from where we were with Begin, who as controversial as he was internally and externally, is looking like a man whose already excellent reputation 40 years later is even more, I think, almost hallowed than one might have guessed that it would be in his own lifetime. Okay, so I want to start back. I mean, we've got to cover a lot of ground, but maybe let's start with what is revisionist Zionism, Begin's relationship with Zev Jabotinsky, and his role in Beitar, which I think a lot of my younger listeners may not even know what Beitar is, but it's an incredibly important organization, particularly within Europe. And mm-hmm. you could argue that it was one of the reasons why, I mean, obviously in the shadow of the Shoah, that you saw such, I mean, you saw an extraordinary generation of people, who, many of whom came from out of Beitar, not exclusively, that helped build the state of Israel not just in 1948, but in that period right before what's known as what Begin calls it in his, in his in his first book, I think, called The Revolt. So let's talk a right. little bit about what kind of Zionism Begin comes from in contrast to the more dominant strain at the time, which would have been associated with Ben-Gurion and so forth. Right. So Ben-Gurion, as you correctly point out, is kind of the default version of Zionism in the early, de- in the decades before the creation of Yeah, state. I think we could say he's the what Israeli George Washington in some ways. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And that's a very good way of putting it. And so what does he believe? First of all, he's a socialist. Yes. Jabotinsky was not a socialist. He was essentially a free market capitalist for all intents and purposes. But more importantly, he was very careful to accommodate himself both to the British and to the Americans later on he was trying to maneuver building a state and not antagonizing, at that point, what we called the occupiers of Palestine, which was the British. Jabotinsky looked at Ben-Gurion and felt that it was a kind of defeatist Zionism, that it was a Zionism that did not believe enough in itself, which said that you have to defend yourself militarily if you're attacked. If you know that somebody is about to launch an attack, well, then your idea, Ben-Gurion, of waiting until you're attacked and only then responding is just ludicrous. I mean, why would anybody in their right mind live that way? And so basically over the course of time, revisionist Zionism, and you know, a lot of times now when we say revisionist history, we kind of mean like not really true, uh, but revisionist no, not, only I meant I, I, then. I mean, the, re- well, a lot of people, when they hear yeah. that phrase revisionist history, they just say that, oh, that's revisionist history, meaning that's not really the way it went down. And I think just because you're referring also to your younger listeners, yeah. I think that's how the word may strike. Them. Fair enough. I mean, Um, you can have more accurate revisionist histories that are much better than the original. Oh, 100%. 100%. By the way, for the lefties, they all cite Avi Schleim and early Benny Morris. They're revisionist historians. 100%. Yes. Right. 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 Revisionist doesn't mean not true. I was just saying because you had the younger younger people in mind that... the, the word gets tossed around as being, yes. like, quote unquote, not true. But what was revisionist meant was it was revising the worldview and the stance of what was mainstream Zionism, was mainstream labor Zionism. It was much more militarily inclined, unlike a more radical faction, which became the Lehi. It did not attack civilians. It only attacked British soldiers and Arabs who yeah. were. Now let's put a pin in that because we got to talk work. about a major incident. But I want to, I want to just do this back. Okay, we'll come yeah, back. Yeah. We'll come back to that. Okay, fine. Yeah. But so Begin grows up in the Jabotinsky world. Begin describes himself as having gone once to Jabotin- a lecture by Jabotinsky in Europe, and he said he found himself simply like transformed. His whole life, he understood at that very moment. He didn't even get a seat. He was kind of squished in the front between the front row and the stage. He could barely see over the top of the stage. 
And he, he reflected in his autobiography called The Revolt about how he had been literally transfixed and transformed by this vision. And Begin grows up and becomes the head of this enormous youth movement in Europe called Beitar. And eventually he and many of the Beitari members make their way to, to Palestine. And if we could just, on, and, on Beitar, I just want to, and, and I want you to make this point, there are Jewish groups today in America and throughout diaspora to be a member of Beitar in the 20s and 30s in Europe, even in non-Nazi Europe, like in, in England, it was, and especially if you were in part of the Soviet Union or what became occupied by the Soviet Union, that was a very brave decision. You were putting your life and your comfort at risk. I just want to make that. A hundred percent. This yeah. is all happening between the wars. Yes. I mean, Begin's leading Beitar before the war. And he's actually going to leave Poland and make his way in a very circuitous way to Palestine with, yeah, with, with, with his onslaught onto Poland. Yes. Right. And he's captured by the Russians and he's in the gulag for a while. And his wife actually uh, leaves and goes to Palestine without him. Not really sure that he'll ever make it out, but uh, it's, another con it's another story altogether. But he grows up in this very in-your-face movement. But it's a movement that's fundamentally about several things. First of all, it's about Jewish pride. It is about the idea that we are not going to be the dishrags of history anymore. You are not going to shape our destiny for us. We're going to shape our destiny. Just like you French people shape French destiny and you British people shape British destiny, we Jews are going to shape Jewish history. That's one. There is a line in the Beitar anthem, Yehudi ben Oni ben Sar. Any, any, any young Jew who is an impoverished person is actually the son of a prince, meaning there's a, certain, there's a certain amount of dignity that ought to come around with being Jewish no matter who you are. By the way, that applied across racial and ethnic lines. Which, yes, so very important later on for Bacon, yes. Right, and yes. this isn't an issue in Europe, because Europe is obviously almost 100% Ashkenazi in that time when Bacon's there. But as soon as he gets to Palestine, of course, that's not the case. And the people who join Beitar are very many of them of, of Mizrahi, Eastern, Sephardi origin, for a whole array of reasons. They were looked down on by the mainstream European elitist, intellectual, Haganah, Ben-Gurion world. Number two, their politics were much more in your face because they'd grown up in Arab lands. And they basically said, you guys are theorizing about Arabs. You've actually lived with them for many generations. We know what we're dealing with here. You guys are being unrealistic. So Begin's notion that every Jew carries a certain amount of inherent dignity and that, you know, Olamot, Olif Bosha Dahar is the, one of the last lines of their anthem, which is either to die or to capture the mountaintop. And by the way, that's exactly language that you hear coming from Israel right now, right. like right today. You hear every general, every officer saying to his or her troops, go in there. There's only one possible outcome here, which is victory. And that, although it's now mainstream Israeli talk, it's very much a, an inherited revisionist, revisionist Zionism attitude. I'll just point out, by the way, that when Israel in this 1967 war under Levi Eshkol, uh, who is the disciple of David Ben-Gurion, who is as labor as labor can get, decides to preemptively strike Egypt in June 1967, thereby winning the war basically in the first several hours. That's a revision, that's a Beitar move. In other words, Begin was so influential that at that point he was still in the opposition and you know nobody had said, no, nobody thought revisionism would ever take over Israel, which it eventually did, of course, with, with the rise of Begin in 77. But in 67, when Israel attacks for the first time, basically what that is, is the, the 
the sort of seeping in of, of revisionist attitude. So it's about Jewish right. dignity. It's about an absolute, it, couldn't care less about ethnic dimensions, very pluralistic in its own way and unwilling to be a victim to history anymore. Yes. Now, I want to I want to drill down on one in. element here when we're talking about Ben-Gurion versus Begin, who are the I think the two major figures. Jabotinsky dies suddenly in a trip to New York. And so it right, really is in Begin in 1940. Right. So it's Begin who after Jabotinsky kind of becomes the leader of what we call the Jabotinskyites or something like that. Now, right. I want to ask this because this is going to this is kind of a strange thing cuz especially for people who don't know much about it, it is the Jewish state. But the Ben-Gurion labor movement was primarily secular, whereas Begin was not not particularly religious, although he, he knew enough that he could pass as a rabbi undercover, Rabbi Sassauer. But right. he, he was always, he, he believed very strongly, you know, he, he was always a practicing Jew. He was somebody who connected, I think, in a in a deep way, even though he was such an intellectual, with Judaism. Whereas I think you could argue that a lot of that first generation of Zionists, the great, you know, the founding fathers and mothers, including, you know, Golda, they were secular. They didn't really have much need for, you know, the traditions of our people and the religious kind of lineage, whereas this was a central part of Begin's identity. Maybe talk a little bit about that. You're 100% right. I think I would even go further, though. I would say rather than they didn't have much need for it, they felt that what had made the European Jew sick was the religious element of Jewish life. They felt that Jewish life in its religious form gave you a kind of an ethereal alternative reality in which you could live. There were things that were kosher and things that were unkosher and things that were pure and things that were impure and things that were permitted and things that were forbidden. And you built this whole world up and you lived your life in it. And you were very careful about all of these various details of the various commandments and ritual issues. And what may have saved Judaism for a thousand years was that it did give you a kind of an alternate world into which to escape in your mind. But at a certain point, especially as pogroms begin to sweep across Europe in the late 1800s and so forth, again, this new generation of Zionists say, no, exa that's exactly wrong. In other words, and Bialik, in one of his most famous poems called The City of Slaughter, actually kind of ridicules. Yeah this attitude of what's permissible, what's not permissible. There's all these rape victims on the ground and the people are asking who's permitted, who's not permitted. It's a horrible scene. And at the end of the day, Bialik is basically saying, you guys, this is what's sick about the Jews. There's this alternate reality that we've created makes you blind to the real reality. And so the Golden Mayors and David Ben-Groyons and Levi Eshkols and Chaim Weitzmans, all of them, Achara Am is a little bit different, but all of them basically grew up in religious homes. They had a, a fairly decent amount of basic Jewish knowledge, maybe even better than that. But they all believed that it wasn't only that they had no need for the religious world. They had a need to leave the religious world behind. Menachem Begin has an entirely different attitude. Menachem Begin is not what we would call today orthodox. No. He wasn't punctilious. I don't think he got up and prayed every morning. I, we know for a fact that he was not punctiliously observant of the Sabbath, but he felt that there were certain, what Mordechai Kaplan many years later would have called folkways. There were certain ways in which the Jewish people comported itself, which was how it bound itself together. There were things that Jews ate and there were things that Jews didn't eat. And it didn't matter if you believe that God said it or God didn't say it. That was theological stuff which didn't interest Begin in the least. What interested Begin was, this is what's given our people a sense of being united about each other is a sense of 
reverence for certain texts, the certain ways in which we comport ourselves on the Sabbath and so forth. So while he was not personally, punctiliously observant of the Sabbath, he would never have violated the Sabbath in public. You just didn't do that. It wasn't about faking anybody out. Everybody knew what he stood for, but he said there's a public sphere. And in the public sphere, you comport yourself the way a Jew comports himself in the public sphere. He was the one that said, El Al is not going to fly on Shabbat. And El Al said, well, we can't make it. He goes, well, you have to figure it out or the country will figure it out. At that point, it was not yet a privatized airline. And he said, just the Jewish airline is not going to fly on Shabbat. He had a rule that all Israeli embassies around the world had to be kosher. And he didn't care that that particular ambassador and all of her staff or his staff didn't care, couldn't care less. It's just not going to be, he said, an Israeli embassy is going to have kosher food. And so it was part of his dignity. In other words, his, his sense was to maintain your dignity in the world, you don't do what European Jews did so unsuccessfully, which is try to reduce the external elements of Jewish behavior so you can blend in as best you can. You know, those people who've seen, what's the new play that was recently on Broadway? The one about Vienna. I'm just blanking okay. on it now. But there was a play that just came out, it's on Broadway last year, about Jews basically trying to assimilate themselves into Viennese life the more, the more and more. But it didn't work because at the end of the day, they were sent to the same gas chambers as those people who refused to do that. And that was Begin's point, basically, that we've survived because of our sense of belief in ourselves and our own dignity. And so, yes, there are things that the Jewish people does because that's the way we've have, we have uh, always comported ourselves, whatever we personally believe theologically or not. Over the course of time, by the way, that religiosity was a huge boon to him politically. Yes, because, because he was able the to... Because Mizrahi right. Jews much were, were much worse. And, you know, they responded to him. They didn't at all respond to Ben-Gurion's hostility to religion because they didn't share that hostility. So in the end, it also becomes a political advantage that was had nothing to do with why he embraced it. He embraced it because that's what he believed. And there's a great story that you relay, and I think he relays in White Knights, where he is in a gulag. It's, you know... It's, it's, that's, you know, hell on earth. And it's the Seder. And he rations four cups of coffee to be the four cups of wine. So he can do his best to observe the Seder. And I see that as such a, an amazing act of dissidence. What a, what an, it's, it's, what an heroic thing to do at great person with everything else that's on his mind. He doesn't know if he'll ever see Elisa, his wife again. He doesn't, he doesn't know where if he's going to survive this 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 ordeal, and he still says, "I have to do this as a Jew." To me, I put that up there with, you know, the the story of of Yahu and the Maccabees as just one of these kind of great moments of Jewish defiance. Maybe I mean I love that story. If you want to talk a little bit about that, no, I think that that's exactly right. He he insisted on being as Jewish as he possibly could in any circumstance. So he didn't have wine. He used coffee. Only had one cup. So he divided it into four. But there was no way that the Jewish holiday of freedom, which is what Passover is, was going to come and go with him in prison and his not observing it. That was, The whole point was that we have year after year after year told a story about liberation, told a story about exiting slavery and making our way till redemption and to freedom that has been part of the animate, that's part of what animated the Jewish people for so many thousands of years. And he understood that that, that, that ritual spoke volumes and he wasn't going to give it up. I mean, there's stories that are told about Jews in Auschwitz, by the way, which is a few years before this took place, where he, where they were also, they would, you're supposed to have two challahs on Shabbat. So whatever tiny little bit of bread that they got on Thursday, they didn't eat. And they would keep it against, on penalty of death, of course, they kept it till Friday so that on Friday, so to speak, they had two right. little challahs. 
which of course was not challahs, was two little tiny pieces of bread. But again, it was their defiant statement that you can cloud the sky with your darkness, but Shabbat still exists. Right. You can say to the to the Russians, you can throw me into a, in a prison. I may or may not ever come out of it, but you can't take away my belief in my freedom. And that was who he was. He was he was he was forced to sign a document, which they wanted him to sign a document saying that he admitted to the crime to the crime of being a Zionist. And he said, I won't sign a document like that. I'll proudly sign a document saying that I'm a Zionist. Right. But I won't sign a document saying that I'm guilty of being a Zionist because I don't think it's a crime. So he didn't deny his Zionism, but he refused to ever fall into the not trap, but the, well, the, the maybe you could just briefly talk command. Yeah, that he's I love this story too, is in the, he's in the gulag and he starts debating his interrogators and his interpreter about Zionism. It, this is before 48. So maybe just tell that. I mean, and right. it, it, which is an extraordinary kind of thing, which is he's there. I mean, this is persecution. He's there because he's the leader of Betar and they think of him as a security threat and they're you know trying to break him, which is what these gulags do. And he is Mount. He's 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 like, no, 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 no. I'm going to debate you. So just talk a little bit about that. I love that story, too. Yeah, I mean, he gets called in for interrogation, as you pointed out, and the guy raises something about your guilty of being a Zionist, and he said, I'm a Zionist, but I'm not guilty of anything. And then he tries to basically explain that Zionism is a national liberation movement. And then in the same way, by the way, that communism or socialism for the Soviets had been, it obviously did not do that, but in theory was supposed to right. be a liberation from the capitalists and all of that. He said, we're exactly about the same thing. You're trying to liberate your people. We're trying to liberate our people. You fought to liberate your people. We're going to fight to liberate our people. You have a motherland that you're not going to sacrifice. We have a motherland we're not going to sacrifice. There's just no difference between, in theory, the liberation that's at the heart of your movement and the liberation that's at the heart of our movement. Now, he did not bother to say, I don't think, I don't remember that, you know, I didn't read all of it recently. It's been many years since I wrote that book. But, you know, I don't think he bothered to say that your, your movement has become obviously repressive and totalitarian, anti-freedom. I don't think there's any point. He edited the that. transcripts. The was, I love that he said, no, 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 no. Admit is different than confess. Like, you know, it's like it's right. By the way, he was such a stickler for yeah. for 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 history and such a stickler for accuracy that when the 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 archives of the gulag, the the KGB, which was prior to that called something else, when it was opened up and it it actually conformed perfectly to what he had written in the revolt or in White Nights, excuse me, what he'd written in White Nights. And people said, oh, wow, look at that. Now we know for sure that what Begin said was accurate. And his son, Benny, said, no, actually, now you know that what's in the archives is accurate, because that what my father said was accurate was never in question. Uh, but yes, yeah, so he would actually say to them, change this, change that, because that's not what we said. Uh, he, was a, he was a very, very, it was a stickler. And he was always a stickler, by the way. Jimmy Carter and the Brzezinski hated him later True. on in his years for being a stickler with Sadat and Carter about what was going to be given back to the Egyptians, what was going to happen to the Palestinians. They wanted somebody that would say, okay, fine, fine, let's just make a deal. And that was not Begin. Begin was, let's look at this tale, that detail, this that detail. They didn't like him at all for it, but it's what made him who he was. Okay, I want to move on because we got only got a, a half an hour left. We are now in the revolt. And... Begin is essentially the, the underground military leader of the SL. And it's uh, right. Yeah. And this is the, I guess you could say it's, it's, this is the Jabotinskyite militia. Is that a fair way to mm -hmm. describe it? 
And then Absolutely. there's the Haganah, which is loyal to Ben-Gurion. And there are moments of unity, and then there are moments when they diverge. But one really interesting episode in this, which has come up, which is part of the discourse today, is a, is a massacre, you could say, or however you want to describe it, a Daria scene. And let's, let's talk a little bit about, first of all, what, what do you think now is the kind of consensus view of what happened there? Okay, let's just talk about very briefly what it was. Okay. Uh, Deryasin is an area that's now basically part of Jerusalem. Yeah. Uh, but back then it was on it was out it was a small Arab village outside Jerusalem. It was a critical spot because it overlooked the road between Jerusalem and the coast, Jerusalem and Tel Aviv, Jerusalem, yeah. basically anything. So if you controlled that hilltop, you controlled the road and you could stop supplies from coming into Jerusalem. It was critical to take that. And this is during the the pre-war part of the war, so to speak. And Different groups, the Haganah and the Etzel and the Irgun, which was a further right, smaller militia organization, were all given different jobs. The Irgun and the, the sorry, the Etzel and the Haganah, Ben Gurion's group, and Ben and and the sorry, the Etzel and the Lefi were going to both uh, take over this town called Dir Yassin. Something went wrong. A lot of things went wrong. There was a truck that had a bullhorn that was supposed to tell the Arab villagers to leave. Right. Uh, by the way, it made it so similar to what's going on in the news right yes. now with Israel telling Palestinians to move south in the Gaza Strip. Uh, but the, the the truck got stuck in the mud and they couldn't communicate to the Arab villagers. The communications equipment between the, the Lefi who were coming in on one side and the Eitzel who were coming on the other side, that didn't work. They've encountered much more resistance than they expected to encounter. And what erupt, erupted was what they thought was going to be a cakewalk, just walk in, tell everybody to get out and take over the town. It ended up being a huge, a huge battle. And immediately the, the, the stories about what happened, rapes and hundreds of people killed and, and, and so horrible say, stories. All began. the men taken to the end of the town and shot, you know, point blank and that right. kind of thing. And, but they said there were hundreds of people dead right. and women were raped and babies were killed and so on and so forth. So the first thing we have to understand is, A, everybody in the story had a, a, a vested interest in the exaggerate in the exaggeration of the numbers, except for Ben Gorion, except for Begin's group, the Arabs had an incentive because they wanted to get the world sympathy. So if they said they came in, there was a firefight, and a few dozen guys got killed, sad. We're sorry for you, but that's. But if they say that it was rapes and mass expulsion, right. and people lined up at rope. Okay, Ben, the Jews of all different sorts, by the way, no matter which side they were on in the internal Jewish conflict, actually had a vested interest in Arabs being scared. Because this was part of actually getting some of the Arab population to move northward into what's now Lebanon, into Syria, some of them into Gaza. And the Jews, quite frankly, did want them to be scared. Uh, they wanted them to leave because it was just impossible with them there. At the end of the day, though, Bacon denied absolutely there had been any rapes. He denied that there had been mass killing. There were a few dozen fighters killed. And it's been a huge bone of contention for a very long time. It, the, I believe that the, the debate really changed dramatically with the appearance of a book by a guy named Eliezer Tauber. Eliezer Tauber wrote a book called The Massacre That Never Was, The Myth of Dir Yassin and the Creation of the Palestinian Refugee Problem. And what Tauber did was by going through Arabic accounts of what happened, British accounts of what happened, Jewish accounts of what happened, then piercing everything together, he was basically able to position exactly where each person was killed and to show that virtually every person who was killed was actually an armed combatant. So there was actually no slaughter whatsoever. Was that before there was a very... the Benny Morris stuff on this? No, it was after okay. the Benny Morris stuff on this. So we, can we just briefly, you want to briefly just say book. what the post, what are they called? The, uh, are they called post-Zionists? 
or no. Well, the plus line is Benny Morris was at one point, I would say, he's one of the no long- historians. Yeah, he was, he's no longer. He's, but he's certainly no longer there. By, by no means is he there. But there were there were there was a there was a period in Israel where some more left leaning, supposedly you know more open historians. Benny was a Benny Morris at Ben Gurion University, a, a world class scholar, is one of them, but never became an anti Zionist. Avi Shlaim, for example, is an extreme version of yes. that, who I think is very much anti Zionist at this point. But people were people like Benny Morris and others argued the Arabs didn't just all get up and walk out. This notion, I was raised, you know, just me speaking right. now. I was raised by, you know, two very Zionist parents. And my parents all, my parents are both academics. Yeah. So they took, you know, they took evidence pretty seriously. But I was raised on this notion that the, you know, the radio from Egypt said in 67, in 48, that all the Arabs should get out, go out. We're going to win the war. Then you'll come back. There were no such broadcasts. It was all baloney. That's what my parents have been taught. That's what they taught me. But this generation of new Israeli historians proved there, there was no such broadcast. And in fact, the Arab groups that left basically left because of three reasons. Some fled, some were intentionally frightened out, yep. and some were militarily forced out. Right. And that was a violation of the classic Zionist narrative, which was we didn't force anybody out, they all fled. Yeah. But what Benny Morris said in his books originally was, it's just not true. We actually did force some people out. And then Darius Seen would fall into the larger right. category of us using violence to get Arabs out. Interestingly enough, with Benny Morris, and this is, I think, perhaps a little bit of an ironic point, but, but your listeners might find it interesting that during the Second Intifada, by which point this is between 2000 and 2004, when Benny Morris has moved very much back into the mainstream of Israeli historical views, he actually said, yeah, I mean, we did throw about a third of the Palestinians out. And in a very famous, much quoted interview in Haaretz, he said, and the mistake that Ben-Gurion made was not getting rid of them all. That was the opportunity that we had to get rid of all of them. And, and, and backing off of that was a mistake. Now, it's not clear that Ben Gurion really had that option, just like the world is watching today, the world was watching then, et cetera, et cetera. But yeah, so people did see Dar Yassin very much as part of the uncovering of the truth, which was that the Jews did use force to get the Arabs out. That is unquestionably true. Dar Yassin was an instance of force the latest research seems to indicate that there was simply no massacre. It just didn't happen. So I want to now get back to the massacre because, as you said, lots of people had different reasons to publicize it. One group who publicizes it is a group of prominent American Jews who write a famous open letter that includes Hannah Arendt, Albert Einstein. And they accuse Begin as the villain of Dariusin. And they take the most extreme account of it and they they sort of say this man is a fascist talk to me a little bit about that because it was an open letter on the eve of him coming to the united states to address supporters and it's like that letter became the history even though it was based on lies right or history i should say but i mean it was like this is now right right yeah no you're a house you're 100 right look first we have to understand What's going on in American Judaism at that time? Yeah. American Judaism is by and large divided into two major groups. If you look at, for example, the American Jewish Committee, which is then the powerful Jewish organization in the United yep. States, it still exists now. It's still very important. But then, I mean, it was really kind of the organization. Uh, it's divided essentially into two flanks, the anti-Zionist flank and the non-Zionist flank. There is a very small sliver of Zionists, but they are really kind of a outlier group. Right. So it's basically American Judaism is divided between anti and non. 
And the reason for that, by the way, is understandable. American Jews are still trying to make it in the United States. American Jewish presidents, American presidents were making it clear that you can't be Austrian-American, Italian-American, German-American. You're either American or you're not. Right. And as soon as you put that dash in there, you're not American. I mean, that's what also Woodrow Wilson was saying that all over the place and so forth. And so American Jews were very conflicted. On one hand, they sort of did want there to be a Jewish state. They understood that, that was an, interest, an important development. But they were very hesitant in general about Zionism as a whole because they felt it was going to shine a spotlight on the allegation of dual loyalty. And we should also say now, that again, part of this is motivated by the fact that America has been very good to the Jewish people overall. 100%. So there 100%. was a sense, I think, from American Jews, particularly the American Jews who came maybe at the end of the 19th century, who had established some roots. This was a great opportunity. Why do you need to go and, you know, cause trouble? Just come to America. That was sort of the the idea. I, I, I'm done. Right. It was certainly the reason that they themselves didn't want to get involved. Yeah. Whether they wanted all those people to come to America is probably another question. Okay. But but I would agree with you. They just said, America's been amazing to the Jews. We ourselves are not going to rock the boat by public endorsing the creation of another state, which is going to make us look like we have a dual loyalty. Yeah. So that's number one. But it also, look at, I mean, it's not that different, by the way, from American Judaism today. There are people who, even as the fighting is going on right now in Gaza, are busy talking about Palestinian losses, which are obviously real, and they're horrifying from a human, from a humanitarian perspective. But without focusing nearly as much on what happened to the Jews four weeks ago, the largest loss of Jewish life since the Holocaust in one day, there's a there's always been a significant flank of Jews that have wanted Israel to look like a kind of universalist, pacifist, right? You know, all embracing mother and apple pie kind of country. Which, of course, it has never been, which no country has never been, which the United States has never been. But they want Israel to somehow be that. And Begin is exactly the opposite in almost every way of what American Jews want themselves to be. Begin is insisting on tradition without batting an eyelash. They are beginning, they're trying to massage tradition right. into something more American, right? Begin is insisting on religious practice. Many of them are moving away from religious practice. Begin is saying, the world is always going to hate the Jews. What are you talking about? And they're saying, no, we're in America. The world doesn't hate the Jews, and you just don't understand that. Begin is saying there's times when you have to use force, and American Jews are saying, no, Jews don't do force. That's not our thing. Albert Einstein, who signed that letter, as you mentioned, was explicit about that. Einstein, by the way, when Israel declared independence, wrote in his diary, he said, it would have been better if they hadn't done it, but now that the act has been done, we have nothing to do but support it. In other words, Einstein was really not all that keen on creating the state in the first place. So when Begin comes to America at that early stage, he embodies everything about Zionism that American Jews did not like. And therefore, he was treated as a kind of an outcast and people boycotted him, tried to get nobody to go to his lectures. When he's elected prime minister, by the way, in 1977, Time magazine writes, you know, Begin rhymes with Fagin. Oh, I know. Um, and then spoke yeah. and, and, and then talks about that. And American Jews were very unhappy with him then, too. Then ironically, of course, almost immediately, he's beginning to negotiate with Amr Sadat to sign Israel's very first ever peace treaty. So they were quickly kind of forced to rethink him a little bit. But Americans just were appalled that a guy who had been involved in Darius scene, which he wasn't, of course, because there was no massacre and he certainly didn't order a massacre. But his group did go into Darius scene and capture it. Uh, they were appalled that anybody like but, him. Would I mean, Begin also expressed remorse for women and innocent, I mean, children who, who were killed in this, you know, in, in the battle, as I remember. Yes, but he insisted that was never the intent. No, 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 I, I understand that. The, I'm just saying, like, you know, it wasn't like yes. he was heartless about it. Like, you know, he, 
Oh, not in the least. No. Not in the least. By the way, I mean, when they, when he, when his group, the Eightsel, was responsible for bombing the King David Hotel yes, building. But- and I say King David Hotel building, not just the hotel. Well, it was, was a military. It was the military headquarters point. for the British, so we should always say correct, that. right? When they when they bombed that, it was not. A, they were not supposed to kill anybody, and you know, ninety something people were killed. And in fact, the people who were with Begum when he was listening to the reports took the the tubes out of the back of the radio because they thought he was going to have a heart attack. I mean, he was so upset about the loss of life because that was not the intent. He was not a heartless person. I mean, he was actually a very caring guy who took very extraordinary, extreme actions to give the Jewish people the state and then to protect that state. But he was never at all oblivious to uh, the loss of yeah. civilian life. I want to return to this letter because I think it they, they were 100% wrong, but they were wrong for reasons they couldn't possibly know at the time. Because Begin, in my view, does something that I think made it possible for Israel to exist, which is the Altalena. And this is where I really want to kind of get, but, but why don't you, well, you, you, you sort of say it, but it, it is an extraordinary moment that this ship comes under fire and there could be very real chance that you would have the Jabotinskyites and the Ben-Gurionites in, in a Jewish civil war and Begin would not allow it. And so just talk about that because to me that yeah. made it possible to have a Jewish state and monopolize the violence to make that possible. So the ship is brought in in the summer of 1948. I believe it was in June 1948, if I'm not mistaken. June or July 1948, but it's brought in. It's during the war. There's a ceasefire. You're not allowed to rearm. Begin did not know that the ship was being sent under the auspices of the Edsel because there was a breakaway group in America that had ordered the ship. It's a halt to do. Uh, it's loaded with arms and about 900 And the UN, come into Israel. New, which just was formed, is there to inspect, right? It's like they're... Yeah, but the ship lands at Kvarvitkin and then goes down south to Tel Aviv. But basically, Ben-Gurion, who does not believe that Ben-Begin, when he says that the arms are, you know, to be... Sh- Ben-Gurion, Begin wanted the arms for his group. Largely, they were supporting and defending Jerusalem, which was not inside what was then called Israel. So therefore, the ceasefire did not apply to Jerusalem. Ben-Gurion was suspicious of Begin from way early on and did not want him to have any of the arms. Begin wanted to split the arms. Ben-Gurion said no. Long story short, Ben-Gurion had the Haganah members in the Palmach open fire on the ship just off the shore of Tel Aviv. And there's pictures of it blowing up and all of that. And Begin is forced into the water by people. He didn't know how to swim, so he's basically carried to shore by people and whatever. There was actually some shooting on the shore between members of the Haganah and members of the Irgun, who were already all part of the IDF, but the, the, the ranks were actually still not really fully blended and the old loyalties still remained. And so when people heard that Begin was coming, a lot of these guys who had fought for him all those years, but had never met him, Said, oh my God, I want to go see him. And it was a, it was a, uh, it was a ceasefire. So there was no fight. Why not leave your unit? Your unit's not doing anything. Right. So they went, but Ben Gurion, of course, interpreted that as you know leaving the ranks to go join him. It, one, one misunderstanding after another, and there was some shooting, and people were killed on both sides. But Begin was the one who got to the shore, went to the radio station, and said, absolutely, positively, not. You may not shoot other Jews. There will be no civil war with our enemy at the gate. That was his phrase. No civil war with our enemy at the gate. Uh, and he put it. He put the uprising down. He put the. He shut down the war. Basically, it was only a few hours, but it was the, as you said, the beginning of a civil war. He shut it down. And towards the end of his life, here is a man who had helped build the state. Here is a man who destroyed the Osirak nuclear reactor in in Iraq. This is a man who had negotiated a peace treaty with Anwar Sadat and and brought about Israel's first peace treaty. This is a man who had built the party called Likud that is still very much in power, although. God only knows what's going to be soon, but it's been a very important part of Israeli politics for a very long time. 
he had a lot of accomplishments to his name. And at the end of his life, or towards the end of his life, when asked what he was proudest of, he said, what I did at the Alto Vena, yes, which was basically to stop people from shooting. That was my proudest moment. And I can't he, I think, think I, uh, I think it's such an extraordinary moment. You, he had is. every right in some ways to defend himself and to have his people defend himself. There was so much ego wrapped up in it. He was smeared with this Daria scene stuff. He, he, I think there's a very strong argument that Ben Gorion was a slippery character and treated him with some treachery. Absolutely. All of that didn't matter because this is a man who understood and almost like he had this extraordinary ability to see himself in this moment through the lens of all of Jewish history. And in that- Bacon it, saw yes. Israel as the next chapter of the Bible. Yes. And that- And if you right. would speak about David or Joshua or whatever, he saw Jewish gen Israeli generals in that light. And to a certain extent, I think he saw himself in that light. He was writing together with everybody the next the next books of the Bible, so to speak. Just like the Jews had come in under Joshua and taken over the land, the Jews had come in under the Zionists and reestablished a foothold in the land. Of course, it's important to state that they bought every single parcel of land that they were on until the United Nations, yes. you know, a partition plan. It's very important to say that. But look, he always looked at the what's the larger goal. So, for example, a man who was said, I'm never giving away a stitch, I'm not giving away an inch of the land of Israel to anybody, gave back the Sinai. Now, technically, this debate is the Sinai, the land of Israel or not. But at the end of the day, people assailed him and he said, no boys are going to die there anymore. The state's going to be protected. It was always about the state. I mean, this is a man who, when he left office in 1982, had to move in with his daughter because he didn't have any money to rent an apartment. I mean, he had just never owned a house. And uh, he won the Nobel Prize. It came with a million dollars. He gave it away. It still, by the way, is producing small amounts of prize money each year. Uh, he's just, he was not a perfect person by any means, and nobody is. But he was an extraordinary leader who was single-mindedly single devoted to things, the Jewish people and the safety of the Jewish people as it would be made to be through the Jewish state. Anything that he had to do to protect the Jewish people and the Jewish state, he would do. Anything that he thought, you know, was going to take away from that, he didn't do. And he was, you know, a deeply devoted person. I think you asked, you asked at the very beginning of our conversation, uh, what's his legacy look like? His legacy looks amazing. Even, by the way, before Israel's current very difficult 2023, his legacy has been amazing. Haaretz, which is Israel's most left-wing serious newspaper, did a thing a couple of years ago. They rated all of the prime ministers. How good were they? From the best to the worst. Now, obviously, number one is not in question. It's always going to go to David Ben-Gurion. It's not anything to discuss. But Begin came in second. In other words, the point was they understood that economically, militarily, diplomatically, in a whole array of ways, he built this country. His story, he got to Palestine in 42. He dies in 82. No, nine, so 90, his life he dies in, in 92. And he, oh, sorry, he leaves office in 82 and he dies in 92. Thank you. That's the story of Israel. Yeah. That's the story of Israel. The story of Menachem Begin is the story of Israel, and Israelis really understand that. So he is uh, a man much missed, by the way, for the characteristics oh, yeah. of leadership that he exhibited and so forth. So as we as we are wrapping up here, I want to just get into this other phase after independence. I also find it extraordinary that Begin would live in political wilderness for 30 years, 29 years, 30 years. Mm -hmm. And he understood how important it was that Israel was not going to be a one-party state. 
maybe talk a little bit about that. The idea that in 1949, it just, especially as you, it just looks like, okay, this is going to be a socialist country. This is, you know, Ben Gurion and his movement is going to, that's the government, you know, I mean, and, and so the decision to just sort of say, I want to be an opposition leader because that's important for Israel too. That to me is like another huge thing because it would have been very easy for him to just sort of say, all right, I'm just going to get along to go along or whatever. But he didn't do that. And that's another one of the reasons I really admire him because I think that it was very important yeah, to have that. Yeah, you're, you're quite right. I mean, he goes into political exile very, very briefly after the elections in 49 when his party fares very badly. And he also had some bouts of depression, apparently. So he takes off some time. That's when he writes The Revolt yeah. and, and so forth. Uh, he lives in like near Shoresh, outside Jerusalem. What brings him back into politics is the reparations issue. Oh, yes. Ben-Gurion announces in the early 50s, we're going to get money from the Germans. He's against it. People go to Ben-Gurion, to Begin and say, you're the only guy that can fight this. This is lunacy. Let the Germans off the hook for money. Now, by the way, at the end of the day, doing that probably enabled Israel to survive economically. But it had to be fought. You, you had to fight to make it clear you're taking money from the Germans. You're not exonerating the Germans. And Begin led a powerful, mighty fight against the reparations, which he lost. But it made him the person that everybody understood was the battler for the Jewish soul of Israel. And that's why when I wrote the book that you were so kind to mention at the outset, I called the Menachem Begin the battle for Israel's soul, because that's what he was. He was the person who battled for Israel's soul. And if he thought that, you know, taking money from the Germans was going to in any way intimate that Israel had forgiven the Germans for what they had done to the Jewish people, then no, we weren't going to take the money. But of course, he lost at the end of the day, and probably rightly so. Ben Gurion had people to feed. Ben Gurion is the head of the I mean, sorry, Ben Gurion had people to feed. Begin is the head of the opposition, did not, as Begin's own son pointed out to me. But yes, I mean, he was always about the battle for Israel's soul. And once the, once the reparations bring him back in, he understands that as his role. Ben-Gurion's going to build the economy and maybe the diplomatic issues, whatever. But Ben-Gurion doesn't care about the Jewish nature of this country. That's what Begin thought. It's not entirely fair. He did care, but in a very different kind of a way. And I am going to be the person to safeguard the conversation about what kind of Jewish country this is going to be. So on the one hand, he's going to give huge amounts of exemptions to ultra-Orthodox kids who don't want to go to the army, which is a very hot political issue right. right now, but he does it then and he does what he does. But by the same token, when he is at a settlement that he's just kind of you know inaugurating and word comes back that the Supreme Court has ruled that the settlement can't be where it is because it's on private Palestinian land, everybody expects him to say, oh, we're not giving it to them, etc. And his famous phrase is, yesh shoftim birushalayim. There are judges in Jerusalem. Supreme Court has spoken. Yep. We'll move the settlement. And so it's always about the soul. It's going to be a democratic soul and a Jewish soul. And they live like a DNA spiral. Yes. They live intertwined together. It's, you don't pick one or the Do other. Do you see sometimes maybe in the context of the, Zion, of the history of Israel, of Zionism, that Ben-Gurion and Begin are like Hillel and Shammai, right? I mean, they're, this is a part of a Jewish kind of tradition of dialectic, which goes back to the Talmud and all of the various kinds of commentary on the margins and how there are always these debates. And in that debate is where we find our soul. I, I, is, is there a connection? And was Begin maybe aware of that kind of idea? I think he certainly understood that he knew enough, as you pointed out, he knew enough to disguise himself as Rabbi Sassover yeah. and and give give lectures on Jewish stuff. So he, he, knew, he knew Jewish sources fairly well. I think he understood that this notion of having an arch- 
not a, like a kind of a political nemesis, but an ideological nemesis was not about hating Ben-Gurion personally, even though, of course, for both of them, did descend to that periodically. But he fundamentally said that the Jews have always argued passionately about ideas. Okay. The Jews have always argued passionately for visions of what Judaism should be. And just like Hillel and Shammai were slightly different, and Rav and Shmuel were slightly different, and Abaye and Rabba, all the various pairs that we talk about, they were like that. And I think he really saw himself uh, as a continuation of that. The nice thing about it is that towards the end of their lives, when they were both older men, I mean, Ben-Gurion dies in 73, and Begin is not yet prime minister. So, But Ben-Gurion is softening in his elderly years, and they developed a kind of, even I would say a warmth, if not a kind of a tight friendship, they kind of warmth toward each other. Because at the end of the day, they understood. Here's what really I think is important. Right. The country would not have existed if it had been missing either of them. Yes. Ben-Gurion was the right. one. That's right. Ben-Gurion was the one who knew how to build the educational system and the tax system and the, the government system and the transportation system and work with the British, then work with the Americans. That's what he knew how to do. Begin knew if you wanted to get the British out, you had to attack them. You had to blow up the King David Hotel building. You had to do this. You had to do that. And Ben-Gurion's strategy was never going to get rid of the British. Without Begin, the British weren't going to leave. But without Ben-Gurion, the institutions that became the state would not have existed. Israel exists because Menachem Begin and Ben-Gurion coexisted at the same time. Yes, very much at each other's throats, either sadly or necessarily or whatever it was. But I think those of us who are observers of that era need to understand this is not about who was right. This is about appreciating we wouldn't have the state that we do had either of them not existed. Right. Could you imagine Israel as a one-party state? You know, I mean, it would have been a very different country. Well, the one-party state is called Russia or China. Yes, right. That's that's what what a one-party state is. uh, We we should make it very clear. It's not like Ben-Gurion allowed an Israeli political system with an opposition. It's not like he was trying to. Of course. But if you didn't have a strong leader who would sort of be there for all those years before 77 and say, you know, there's another argument. This part is wrong. We can't, you know, the reparations is a great example. Israel would be a very, very different place. And... (laughs) Absolutely. I think it would be a I think it would be a poorer place in many ways, not just economically. But I mean, I think that there is a. So anyway, this was such a throw. And I think it would be it would be Jewishly a much poorer place also had it not been for Menachem Begin's deep pride in what Jewishness was always about. And he would be very I think he would be very moved to see 21 years after he left office that there's been a huge revival of Jewish interest on the left and the right and the religious and the secular the rabid hostility to Jewish tradition that was represented by Ben-Gurion and Golda Meir, that's basically died, or at least it's much its much eroded. And I think especially now, after what Israel went through at the beginning of 2023 with its internal divide and what it's going through now towards the end of 2023 with its external, very serious challenges, it's all going to be about purpose. It's all going to be about meaning, why are we here? Why is it worth fighting these battles? Because we're trying to build something Jewish. What's the substance of that? To answer that question, you actually have to do what Menachem Begin did, which is to take the tradition seriously, to engage with its ideas, make your own decisions about how you want to live, but not to leave it behind in the dust. Because if you do that, you really have no North Star. Yeah. And Begin understood that Judaism had to be the North Star of this country. So I'm going to say with that, because I know you have a heart out, this is such a thrill for me. Thank you so much, Dr. Gordas. I have to have you back because you've written a lot of great books. I would like to have maybe a part two and a part three on Begin, because there's so much that we didn't even cover. It would be my honor. I mean, what, anyway, and thank you for for adding to the literature 
so we can so other generations who didn't know bacon who didn't live when he was around can know who he was because i believe well i see him as one of the great figures of jewish history he absolutely was a towering figure towering in history and thank you for the opportunity to talk about absolutely him. shabbat shalom thank you take care all the best okay. thank you so much for absolutely having me. thank you this has been the re-education with eli lake a nebulous production Please find us wherever you find your podcasts. And if you are listening on Apple Podcasts, please leave a five-star review. It helps other people find the show and makes us feel really good about what we're doing.